Welcome back to the Underworld Podcast. I am your host, Danny Gold. I'm here with Sean Williams, and this is the podcast where we take you into the secret worlds of transnational organized crime and the podcast that we started so I could help Sean pay off a drug debt that he has to a bunch of Lebanese gangsters in Berlin. I was going to ask you how Thanksgiving went then, but I guess I'll uh, just tell you how I've been on the run for the last few months. But yeah, it's still, it's still tough times, yeah. Yeah, that's why you're headed to New Zealand in a few days, right? Just to kind of let things die down a bit? Yeah, I mean, if it's good enough for Peter Till, it's good enough for me. That Kim.com guy as well, right? So. It's a, good, it's a good place to hide out. They probably won't be able to reach you there. But uh, today we have a very special episode, and it's special because it's the one where I'm like, uh, you know, uh, I want to make sure that these guys kind of like me because uh, <laughs> probably know where to find me, and I know where they are. So uh, I just want to get this out of the way ahead of time. Um, we, we just want to say Albania is strong. We support the greater Albania. Love my Albanians. I wouldn't even mind if you guys got put back in charge of Egypt's. You know, the, the Underworld podcast wants absolutely no smoke with the uh, Albanians <laughs> in the Bronx and Westchester. All right. So you got no Serbian friends in, yeah? Well, we support them. T- we support all. Anyway, um, we're going to talk about the Albanians in the Bronx and, you know, them and maybe Albanians in general, kind of based on all the requests we've gotten to do an Albanian mafia episode, have, let's just say, uh, a reputation. One of those reputations where you don't, really don't want like, a problem with them. I remember hearing about them, specifically this group out of Yonkers in the Bronx in the late 90s. High school, actually. And yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to you know, tell a little, little Danny Gold youth story uh, for all of you. <laughs> we used to go to this strip of bars in a, in a small city just north of the Bronx called New Rochelle. And the bars were on a stretch called North Avenue. And they were all allegedly owned by local cops. And this was before everything was like lawsuits and social media callouts for breaking rules and all that. So back in the day, if you had a New York State driver's license... They used to have this weird surface material, and you could write on them with colored pencils, and it would look legit. We called it chalking, and kids were able to change the numbers on their birth dates and years to make it look like they were 21. So you could change, like, an 83 to an 80. So if you were 18, you know, the bars were 21 and older. For international listeners, you can get into them and stuff like that. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, we didn't even need fake IDs in the UK. They just let us in the pubs when we were, like, 13, 14. But as long as you sat in the corner and you just shut up, no one really gave a shit anyway, but... That's pretty much why we're a nation of alcoholics. Yeah, it was a bit. It was a bit different. Bit, bit different back then. I mean, twenty-one, man. It, it was tough. You had to have your older brother buy you beer when you were fourteen at the gas station. And I kind of feel like uh, like every group of friends back in the day had this one guy who was like the guy, like the artist who did it for everyone. You know, we're talking fourteen-year-old organized crime here, fifteen-year-old organized crime. But we would use those IDs to go to these bars, and nobody cared again because they were owned by cops. But there were always these Albanian crews that hung out there of like, you know, 17, 18, 19 year olds. And they would just get into fights all the time and just like, you know, beat the crap out of people. And so, that's kind of when. So you, you, you got into the bars because the cops run the bars. I think, I mean, look, everything when, when you're young is all made up, you know, but the, <laughs> the legend was that no one cared about underage kids going to these bars, even with these obviously fake IDs was because cops owned the bars, which okay. isn't that far, you know, isn't that yeah. far fetched. Um, but that's kind of where, you know, I first started hearing it about, you know, not fucking with the Albanians and this guy, Kevin Heldman, who's a fantastic gonzo journalist, who did amazing gritty work. And he wrote this series about one of the Albanian crews in 2011 that we're going to reference a lot later on. He said he remembers starting to hear the famous phrase, don't fuck with the Albanians in the late eighties. So way before me, even he himself came across them at the Westchester County fair in Yonkers. Yonkers is like the next city up that borders the Bronx. 
when there was just a big crew just marauding through the county fair, hitting people with bats over some beef. And in the article that Hellman wrote, like what, that was his intro to this series, he said the Albanians in New York got known for, quote, shooting up score strip club, putting a hit out on Giuliani and his prosecutor, employing an active duty cop for crime jobs, muscling in on and pulling guns on the Gambino family during a sit down at a gas station, allegedly, demanding John Gotti's old table at Rouse, allegedly. Plorent Lenti Dervishaj, the most wanted fugitive in his native Albania, the alleged head of an organized crime syndicate, is on the federal authorities' most wanted list for New York City. Among other things, he had rocket launchers. Okay, so that's a lot of information. He put a hit out on Giuliani. Where did that go? And like, remember where Giuliani was an actual, like, legit guy fighting the mafia on behalf of the good people in New York? I mean, that's pretty crazy, right? It sounds crazy for people now to to think if you've been watching his hair dye and all that. But yeah, he was known. There are going to be people listening to this podcast that don't even know the old Giuliani, right? Dude, he's the one who took on the Italian mafia and the Albanians as well. And we'll, we'll get to that because some of the stuff I said here, it's a bunch of different crews, some of them single guys. So, But it is, it does all contribute to this legend, right? It's part of the folklore and how this rep grew. And that's something we talk about a lot is, you know, reputations, folklore about these gangs and, and how they're related. Sometimes it's warranted. Sometimes it's exaggerations, but we're going to get to all that. So one last story. Like I remember this crew from Yonkers or the Bronx went up to a house party in the city that I lived in. And we must have gotten there maybe 10 minutes after they left. An ambulance was just getting there. One of them had gotten turned down from getting into the party and told to basically fuck off. And they came back later with four cars full of people and just like cracked bottles on everyone's head. And, you know, so this was just like a known thing in the late 90s, really. And soon... These groups, they got crazier and they got wild enough to take on the Lucchese's and the Gambini's and, and all that. Gambinos. Did, did you like grow up in the Sopranos? <laughs> this is crazy. I mean, like the worst thing that happened to me at a house party was one of my friends got pushed in someone's pond. No, it was, uh, you know, there was a lot of, uh, it, it wasn't that crazy, but there was a lot of like, we had a lot of kids that pretended they were in the mafia. A lot of Italian American kids who, you know, sort of had that, uh, that, that sort of pretend my dad's in the mafia situation. Uh, they watched Goodfellas at too young an age and really took it to heart. But um, anyway. <laughs> Solid way of getting out of trouble, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Moving on. Uh, Albania itself is, is a tiny country in the Balkans, maybe 3 million people. But ethnic Albanians are spread out among neighboring countries like Montenegro, Kosovo, and others. And the country itself, it's smack up against the former Yugoslavia, just north of Greece. And we're not going to get too much into the history over there. We actually want to do a greater worldwide Albania Mafia episode that will focus on all this stuff. But briefly, they had a crazy Stalinist, horrible repression government for 40 years that basically kept the country closed off like North Korea. One of those old systems where blue jeans and rock and roll are banned, where school children are told to snitch on their parents for being enemies of the state, you know? And as we've covered, that messes people up. Yeah, right? I mean, yeah, that country was insane, like... He banned beards, Hodger, the, the dictator there. He had 750,000 pillboxes around the edge of the like the border so people couldn't get out. And he banned people looking at Greece. I think you could like get put in jail for looking across at Greece or something. And then they, when the Berlin Wall fell down, the people didn't even know for like a year because they were so cut off from everything. So yeah, yeah, we'll get into that in another episode. Anyway, there's so much for that country. But in general, like th those sort of things, those decades of, of having a government like that and that sort of repression, I mean, that traumatizes an entire people. You see it with Syria. You saw it with Libya. I mean, it really, 40 years of just brutal yeah. rule will do something to a culture and to a people. Oh, yeah, for sure. 
So that communist government falls apart in 1990, 1991, and the country is one of the poorest in Europe. Then this crazy scam happens where these shady banks open up because no one knows anything about capitalism. And the entirety of the country pours their money into these banks who are promising insane returns, like 40% a month, things like that. It turns out that they're all a pyramid scheme. They collapse in 1997, and the whole country goes haywire. There's looting and rioting, and the government falls, and the looters target all these armories because the crazy communist government was always paranoid of an invasion, and they stored massive amounts of guns and weapons everywhere. And then all of a sudden, those weapons are on the streets, and it becomes this lawless, violent place where the murder rate goes sky high because you have a traumatized people, no money, a lot of guns. 6,000 Italian peacekeepers had to be brought in after the government fell, and something like 500,000, 600,000 modern weapons, you know, Kalishnikovs, according to Scott Anderson in a New York Times Magazine article, find their way onto the streets in a country with like 3 million people. That's crazy. I mean, I've been out to Albania a bunch of times, right? I did some stories about blood feuds back in the day and some local mafia that ended with me drinking moonshine in some hut in the mountains. That was pretty cool. But like, the, the whole pyramid scheme is crazy like a pal of mine in Tirana that's the capital he said that his neighbor just rocked up one day with like a tank on his front yard uh which yeah kind of tells you everything you need to know about the country at the time I guess it beats a Prius I mean the the gas mileage on tanks is not it's not ideal you know True. you're not gonna get you're not gonna get far there's the problem yeah <laughs> I think I think Hellman he summed it up nicely he wrote quote the Albanians were locked away from the rest of the world during communism they went through a genocidal purge and an economic collapse. Their children got guns and shot at each other in the streets. They suffered from a horribly corrupt government. Also, you had the nearby Yugoslavia breakup with all those wars and politician mafia groups gaining traction and power and millions from racketeering we covered way back in episode one. Not to mention you had this militia operating right next door known as the Kosovo Liberation Army that was made up of ethnic Albanians who were trained guerrilla fighters, and, you know, they moved around parts of Albania too. Here's The Economist from only a few years ago. Quote, Several reasons helped to explain why organized crime was able to put down strong roots in Albania after the fall of communism. The disbanding in 1991 of the country's security service, the Sigurimi, which I'm sure I'm mispronouncing, which left around 10,000 agents with skills well-suited to organized crime jobless. The collapse six years later after that of various Albanian pyramid schemes that robbed many people of their savings and prompted the looting of more than 550,000 small arms from military armories. And the emergence in Albania and Kosovo during the Balkan Wars of strong links between criminals, politicians, and guerrilla fighters, with some players filling all three roles. By the late 1990s, northern Albania especially, where clan loyalties had always been important, had become a violent, lawless place, riven by murderous feuds. Yeah, I mean, like, this country's like a Balkans, a mini Balkans, right? And, like, it's starting to sound a bit arcane, all of this as well from episode one, how all these kind of different things just falling apart at the same time made these people fall into crime, right? Yeah, I mean, fall into crime. Look, we, we, we <laughs> here at the Underworld Podcast, we're supporters of personal responsibility, but at the same time, I mean, I think one of the things we try to get across here is that crime comes from people that are marginalized, lack of opportunities, and that people are also products of their environments. I mean, if you're growing up in an environment like this, you have very few options and you're much more likely to get involved in wearing tracksuits and gold chains and shooting people. Yeah, it's like, you know, I went to parties where people got pushed in the ponds and I'm an upstanding member of society. And you went to parties where people got baseball batted in the face. So that's where you ended up where you are. I tended to, to, to sort of miss those 
Um, but they were in the vicinity. Anyway, so the murderous feuds, right? They're real, and it's real, real easy to start talking about these famous Albanian blood feuds and honor code and kind of get into fetishizing it and whatnot. But the thing is that, like, it is, it's real. It's a real thing that exists in the culture and people, and, and people die over it, and it affects how Albanian crime figures carry themselves. It's called the Kanun, and it amounts to a set of rules and codes that came out in the 15th century, and it helped dictate how people carry themselves in the mountainous areas of Albania in these little isolated villages where you had to have laws or things would go like pretty crazy. There's actually a really good Judith Matloff book called No Friends with the, with the Mountains, and it's all about how isolated mountain cultures were really prone to violence and conflict. And she has this quote about how harsh conditions produce closed and defensive communities that balk at being controlled by others. She actually talks about the blood feuds too. And the, the, the kanun, these codes, they're all about honor and loyalty to family and clan. And because these villages were so isolated in the mountains, these codes stayed intact for centuries, despite some repression during the communist era. And as Scott Anderson writes in that article, in accordance with this allegiance, taking revenge in order to defend the honor of one's family is not only permissible, but also a sacred duty. Of course, unlike medieval times, now that duty can be carried out with modern weaponry like assault rifles. Yeah, I mean, the guy whose feud I reported years back was like stabbed almost to death by the boys in another family over land. And then his own brother comes along while he's getting beaten half to death and like beats one of these guys to death with a hand plow. And then this guy couldn't leave his house because he'd be shot by the surviving brothers. Like he'd been burned, he'd been pistol whipped. Like the guy was a wreck and he was like drinking every day, all day. And he was like, it was a crazy situation. I mean, it's like, it reminds me of the stuff in Afghanistan with the Pashtun code as well, right? Similar kind of stuff. Like tribes don't want to be put down by the government. They build their own laws and then it kind of just goes under the radar of the government when it's, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this goes back even, if we're talking the 15th century, Albania wasn't even a country then. You know, this goes yeah. back before, before anything. And it's not even a religious thing too. You know, it's just like, the codes. And I think a lot of areas had these codes in the 15th century, but if you're super isolated, it's hard. And the government doesn't have a presence there. It's hard to sort of adapt to these, these modern times. But yeah, there's some dark stories, man, of, you know, if, if you get your face cut, it, it's apparently worthy of a blood feud. Um, people oh. locked up for 20 or 30 years in home so they don't die. Keith Elliott Greenberg in 1992 for City Journal. We've referenced his articles before too in the Russian episode. He did these great stories back then. He wrote this article about this Albanian like NGO that came to the Bronx and their sole work is to go around putting an end to the blood feud vendettas. And he says they were able to stamp out 10 oaths of revenge and 12 blood feuds in their week in the Bronx. And I'm, I'm not exactly sure what the difference is, to be honest, between a blood feud and a revenge oath. Like they both sound pretty, I, yeah, I don't want to be involved in either one of them, you know? Yeah. I, I mean, I have my, I have my oaths, my blood oaths and my, my vengeance, but they're not, they're not as, as, as deep as this, you know? <laughs> yeah. Just like 10 years old, 15. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I do know that if a family is dishonored, like they need to get that honor back. If someone is murdered, revenge on the male relatives of the murderer is par for the course. Says Greenberg, once an Albanian is killed, the feud can quickly escalate. Male family members are responsible for preserving the honor of the deceased, even if it takes generations to obtain revenge. But there are limits, even in blood feuds. And I think you said at one point, the, the limit was like 21 killings. Wait, so like one family kills 10 and the other family kills 11? So one has to win? You know, I didn't write it down, but uh, it might just be 21 for one side. I, I, I don't know the details. I'm sure if we do that Greater Albany episode, we can get, we can get 
more yeah, into it, you know? Fact check us, right? Send us an email. Yeah. Let us know. Fact check us, baby. Yeah. So, you know, I say all that to say this. Um, this kind of history and, and, and these situations breed a certain kind of, of culture sometimes. And, and we've covered this before. People are products of their environments and the environment of Albania, you know, in the last 50, 60 years and because the blood feuds in the north was one of lawlessness and violence. And organized crime, again, is not unique to Albanians. We focus on all groups from all ethnicities and countries. We're, we're an inclusive podcast. And our baseline theory is that organized crime results out of marginalization, lack of opportunities. Plenty of Albanians came to the Bronx and did normal things and had normal jobs. But those people don't make for good podcast episodes. So we're going to focus on the bad ones. <laughs> yeah, of course. New York City has the largest population of Albanians in the U.S. I think it numbers around 150,000 now. And they're concentrated in the Bronx with some in Ridgewood, Queens, and Astoria, and Staten Island. And Albanians first started moving here after some ended up in Italian refugee camps after World War II. But they began coming to New York City in large numbers in the 1960s, mostly ending up in the Belmont neighborhood in the Bronx, which if you've seen the movie Bronx Tale, that's, that's, that's Belmont, you know, a heavily Italian neighborhood. If you haven't seen Bronx Tale, I don't mind if you turn off this podcast right now and go watch it. Like, it's really, it's really that good. Wait, so how, I have to go watch some movie now. Bronx Tale, okay. Nah, you're working, but like, go watch, go watch Bronx Tale, like, at, at some point. Cool. So underrated, honestly. It's up there with me with, like, Goodfellas. Whoa. Yeah, legit. Yeah. But if you go to Little Italy now in the Bronx, I mean, Arthur Ave, which is, like, the only real part of Little Italy left in New York City, has stayed very Italian, but you also find cafes around there with men sitting, drinking tiny espressos, and most of them are, aren't Italian, right? They're, they're Albanian. Ridgewood, Queens, too, has like a lot of those little cafes where I stumbled into one once after reporting in the neighborhood, and it felt like I was in a scene in the Pusher Trilogy. Uh, people were not friendly, and I got out of there quickly. So yeah, the, the, the Albanians, when they moved up there, they kind of edged out a lot of the Italians that used to live there. And it's interesting, a lot of pizzerias are actually run by Albanians now, not Italians. Even in 1990, something like 35% of pizzerias in the Bronx were already run by Albanians. So sort of how the Albanians edged the Italians out, out in the neighborhood and the pizzerias, they also tried to do the same with them in organized crime, especially in the Bronx and in Queens. And it's like, it might and, be worth mentioning just for listeners that like Albania and Italy are just a short stretch of water away. I mean, there's like so much cultural crossover between the two countries as well. Like if you go to Albania, you're going to eat pizza too. So like, yeah, they're, they're just like, they're, they're totally like intertwined through history of the two countries. I'm sure most people when they go into a pizzeria can't tell the difference. No, maybe. I don't so know. Greenberg, the guy who wrote those, those pieces, um, he said that the Albanians in the Bronx mostly came from the former Yugoslavia, not from Albania, especially after Tito, who was in charge of Yugoslavia, the dictator there, died in 1980 and the country started to disintegrate. And he has a quote from a, from a newspaper writer who lived in Belmont who says, after each war, the side that doesn't win comes to America. And it, what's really cool is that he kind of goes into a bit more of the ethnography. You know, he says most of the ones who came to the Bronx were members of something called the, the Geg tribe. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. I'm probably not. Which were indigenous to the barely penetrable mountain regions north of the Shkumbin River. And the other major group of Albanians in New York were the Tosks, Tosks, who came from the farming regions south of the Shkumblin and Gravi... Dude, I'm just butchering everything. <laughs> and gravitated mainly to Manhattan and Queens. And apparently there's rivalries too between the north and the south there. That was, a, that was a tough bunch of words you had to do there. <laughs> Got a lot of sympathy Dude, it's just, it's just ugly. I mean, if, if you guys get the Patreon up, like I will learn all the pronunciations before I start talking. But until you do, you know, I'm just, I'm just no going to butcher everything. Yeah, like, and the problem back in the Balkans is that ethnic Albanians are kind of spilled out into other countries, right? Like Macedonia, Serbia, Kosovo, 
And then like most Albanians are Muslim in a mostly Christian region. So you can probably fill in the gaps there where all these wars come from. Well, there's lots of, I think there's lots of Catholic Albanians too. And, and, and the way the country's always been described to me was that it was a pretty, pretty secular it's place secular, where, yeah, 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 where, where like clan and, and village structure matters a lot more than religion. Yeah, for sure. There's definitely, I mean, when I was doing research for this too, if you Google around, there's definitely like weirdo blogs who talk about the Albanian mafia as like, you know, crazy Muslim Al Qaeda, whatever. But I, I, I mean, you know, uh, I mean, they're just like they're just like an Ottoman outpost back in the day. So they just stayed Muslim afterwards. Not like it's a pretty secular place. Yeah, no, they're not. They're not. They're not Al Qaeda, and there's not like <laughs> like a weird Islamic thing to them. I think you know, it's not like a. It's there's a lot of dot blog spots from uh or GeoCities websites from from the mid two thousands <laughs> where dudes are just running with that and running wild. But as far back as 1994, the New York Times wrote an article talking about how the newly formed Albanian gangs were turning burglary into an art form. So they were based in the Bronx, and they would hit retail stores all over the East Coast. They would actually pretend to be tourists filming modern stores for the folks back home. And I kind of love that, right? Just playing on these American stereotypes where these guys are filming the stores to case them, and they're like, look how many varieties of breakfast cereals and land of freedom. But in reality, they're just casing the joint to just come back and, and rob everything later. So they would, they would come back, crack the safes, and just steal everything. And 300 stores were hit in a few years. They say the take was $100 million. And it kind of sounds like they were... Yeah. Yeah, dude. They're, they're legit. It kind of sounds like they were early predecessors to the Pink Panthers, which is another Balkan, though I think more Serbian or Bosnian smash and grab group that we're going to do an episode on in the future who kind of do that but with jewelry and fine arts. Yeah, like I've got a good Patreon episode lined up on them actually soon. Balkan politics, bank robbers, Kim Kardashian... So yeah, that's yeah. going okay, to be, be great. It's going to be a big mover right yeah. there. Yeah. We might, we might switch to, we might do a video episode for that one. Cause like, I we'll, think, we'll, uh, we'll get some hits. Yeah. We'll get a shout out from Kim as well. Right. She's pretty good on socials. Wait, she's Armenian dude. Not a, she got robbed by him. She got robbed by them. Oh, she did. Yeah. 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 yeah oh like yeah. That's right. Ago. In, in London, right? Yeah. I think Paris? London, uh, there's one in Venice as well. That's a really cool heist. Uh, these guys are just crazy. Yeah. Listen to the episode. That's going to be a good episode. Um, but this is going to be a good episode too. We're still going. Oh yeah. So these groups, these robbers all used to meet at social clubs. Where else? Arthur Avenue. The feds had a hard time busting them because of course, due to all the reasons we've discussed when it came to Chinatown gangs or the Russians, you have an insular culture, language difficulties, you know, this pronounced honor code and adding to it, the clan structure, the canoon, all the old school village ways that translated to the Bronx and organized crime. This, this detective with the Nassau County police, John Saprini, who had tracked these crimes for years, said, it's the birth of yet another organized crime group. This is not like the Gambino crime family. It's more set up in terms of the Russian mafia, where there are individual crew leaders and each operates independently. So we, we, we call these groups the mafia, but we're using that as a catch-all for sort of organized crime group, you know, because it's kind of like, it's kind of not the, not the right way to describe these guys, um, even though they did claim to be the sixth family at one point, but we'll get to that later. You know, a lot of media actually point to this this group as when the whole Albanian crime thing got started. But there's one kingpin who kind of gets overlooked because he was ahead of his time, I guess. Albanians in Europe and the Balkans have been big in transnational crime, especially in terms of, of you know, cross-world drug networks uh, for decades, I think. And the Balkan connection, while not as big as the French connection or the Sicilian connection, was estimated to be moving, I think, 25 to 40 percent of the U.S. heroin trade. This is like in the late 70s and 80s, I think. Uh, it's according to a Tom Robbins article from 2005, which it actually sounds a little dated, but he says 
DEA agents say the heroin flows from Turkey through Bulgaria and Greece into Yugoslavia. From there, it can wind up in Rome, Brussels, The Hague, and the U.S. Once in America, the Balkan heroin is believed by officials to be distributed by some ethnic Albanians and Turks. Oh, yeah, this is still going on in in Europe as well. Lots of Marcos and Jacobs with Ks dealing in Germany these days. A friend told me. Yeah, and also, I mean... You hear a lot now about the Albanians moving into the the cocaine trade, I think, especially in, in, in England. Um, I think I got deep into like a YouTube hole of Albanian rap groups, uh, <laughs> both in Albania and in London, with just like Maseratis and AKs in the video. Is it good? Uh, and I mean, it's, <laughs> they, they have the right look, but it's also like, you know, they're making the same mis- group, uh, mistake that, that rap groups in the US do, which is like, don't make rap songs about your crimes, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, because it'll it'll come. I mean, Casanova just got arrested. I don't know if you know who Casanova is, big Brooklyn rapper, just got arrested by the feds, uh, and he was making songs about his gang affiliations. <laughs> and um, I mean, we'll see if the charges hold. But it's like, don't publicize your crimes. I can't stress that enough. Do not do it. Don't well, do it on Instagram. <laughs> don't do it in rap songs. It won't end up well for you. But otherwise, the music is good, right? You're still keeping the Albanians on side. Yeah, yeah, no, no, they're they're great. I would never ever insult um, their music. <laughs> double sided eagle, double headed eagle, right? Is that it? Yeah, 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 that's the one. Yeah, throw it up, man. Throw <laughs> it up. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the Fileo Fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. So, so the big player in New York um, doing this in the late 70s and 80s was a guy, his first name I won't be able to pronounce, but they called him Joey. Last name was Lika. Lika? Lika? He was more of a Staten Island guy than a Bronx guy. All right, all right. What does that mean? Like, I, I lived in New York. I don't really know what yeah, Staten Island I forget. is. I mean, New York is five boroughs. Uh, Staten Island is often the forgotten borough, the fifth borough. It's uh, more suburban. Um, a lot of guys with Yankee tattoos on their legs. It's <laughs> kind of like New Yorkers look down on it, but uh, I mean, it's a cool place, man. They got cool things going on down there. Yeah. So this, this, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I uh, they got they got a ferry that people like. I got some I got some some people from there. Wu Tang is from Staten Island. Come on, All show right. some respect. My 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 dog came from Staten Island. He was a dick though. So I don't really know what to make of that. I, I can't tell if you're being serious or not right oh, now. I'm serious. Mean? I'm serious. Like you adopted a dog from Staten I, Island? I adopted a dog from Staten Island back in the day, yeah. And he was some like feisty little shih tzu. And he was a prick. <laughs> so there you go. That's my, anyway, own, that's my only interaction with Staten Island. Moving on. Uh, good Sri Lankan food. This comes from an academic and a researcher, Jane Arsovska, who, amazing work. I want to eventually get her on the show. She says Lika's organization distributed heroin in the Manhattan artistic neighborhoods, like the Lower East Side, using Chinese stores. And he was maybe bigger than the Bronx Albanians who followed in his organized crime footsteps, but some people say he did tens of millions in drug importing, but he was busted in 1981. He had set up a system with another Albanian mobster who operated a travel agency in Staten Island, and together they would finagle immigration paperwork and scams to Yugoslavia and Turkey, where they then smuggled the drugs in. Um, he wasn't too well known, but some people say he was big and known in the underworld. But then he did something that sort of begins this legend of the New York Albanians being these, you know, insane tough guys who won't back down from anything and are reckless and, and insane. 
he puts a hit out on a federal prosecutor and a DA agent. So the Giuliani thing, it wasn't actually on Giuliani. That was kind of a mistake made in that article. But Giuliani talked about it because he was the prosecutor at the time, a highly respected federal prosecutor who went after the Italian mob, like we said. He offered 400K to anyone who would do it. I've heard other places say 40. I don't know what sounds more right for killing a prosecutor, but 400K, because there was a DEA agent, agent too, might be, might be accurate. Uh, they were allegedly looking to hire the leader of the Westies, who, again, I'm going to do an episode on, they were just this crazy Irish gang in, in, in Hell's Kitchen who the mob often contracted to do their dirty work, and they went up against the mob sometimes, too. Um, wow. These, yeah, they I were... Mean, these they were, New York neighborhoods really don't live up to their name. These I mean, Hell's days, Kitchen still has its grimy parts, but it, but it definitely lived up to its name back then. So despite all that, Lika and his guys, they don't leave too much of an impression. You see, the real guys who put the Albanians on the map came a decade later, and they, they really made some waves. They were called the Corporation otherwise known as the Rudaj organization. Alex Rudaj was an Albanian from Montenegro who came to the U.S. in 1987. <laughs> Montenegro, man, that is a wild place. We should do an episode on that as well. If this pandemic wasn't on, I'd be all over Europe doing underworld episodes. Just get that vaccine out, guys. You, you've been there? Yeah, yeah, it's a cool place. Beautiful, but like, like massive casinos, drug kingpins. Like, yeah, it's, it's a pretty wild place. We should probably move there and do the podcast from there, to be honest with you. Yeah, let's do it. So he got started running around with some connected Italians and the five families, which wasn't that abnormal. I'm, I'm sure people have heard of, of John Elite, who's all over the place and like all these YouTube shows, and he's in a lot of mafia documentaries. He was tied in with the Gambinos, and he was Albanian. Yeah, that, that's the guy that just looks like a cartoon character, right? It's like pumped up, the muscle guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, uh, he's, he's, uh, he'll come see you in a different way. You know, I think that's his famous line. And, uh, in that, in, in Fear City, that documentary on Netflix where he's talking about how he's like, look, I'll go see the guy. If he has the money, he's fine. If he doesn't have the money, I'm going to come back. I'm going to come see you in a different way. <laughs> Great line. I mean, you can't, you can't yeah, beat that yeah, line. Yeah. There was another guy who had a reputation. Zab Mustafa was Albanian. He played a similar role of, you know, beating people to death with baseball bats for one of the five families. See, you know, the Albanians, they were newcomers at this time. They were broke. They were desperate. And they were like the Sicilians of old, you know, who, uh, who had to do a lot more to get themselves established. And the Italians started using them as muscle, as enforcers, until finally one day the Albanians were like, hey, we can do this on our own. Nardino Calati, who was a Bronx guy who ran with Rudaj, he came up in the Gambino family and was supposed to take control of some gambling rackets in the Bronx, but he was passed over for Joe Gambino. So that pisses him off. In 1993, him and Rudaj, they start running their own gambling ops in Mount Vernon, in Port Chester, in the Bronx. So that's up in Westchester, the suburbs north of the Bronx, where my stories come from. And soon these guys start strong-arming, they start demanding protection money, they go the old-school tried-and-true mafia route. Rudaj is making a name for himself. You know, there's another story of him in 1996 where he's hanging out the sunroof of a car to shoot at another organized crime <laughs> figure. That's on brand. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, you know, it's a classic Grand Theft Auto move. <laughs> the Albanians, they're focusing on underground gambling parlors, on protection of money, extortioning, and loan sharking, and video poker machines, which sounds you know, kind of ridiculous. But listen to this from, from a, you know, a Fed's press release after they bust these guys. Agents estimate that it controlled, at least it being the Albanians, their, their organization, controlled at least 50 video poker machines throughout Queens, the Bronx, and Westchester County. Each machine pulled in at least $700 a week or about $1.8 million a year altogether. A single dice game could bring in an additional $67,000 a week. 
They were choking on money, the case agent said. The Albanian ring eventually branched out into extortion, debt collection, and loan sharking. Yeah, like, we did that episode on the Berlin clans, and they make tons of money out of, like, they call them spiel casinos, like, basically the same kind of stuff. And, like, the, the billion-dollar meth lab episode that we just did, one guy that I mentioned in that, the American Laotian guy who was, like, dealing loads of meth, he actually made, like, tens of thousands of bucks each month just on these weird giant Chinese gambling tables where people like punch a bunch of buttons and like there's, they hit fish with guns or something. I don't know. But like these things make serious money. They're like a staple. Yeah. It's, a, it's, it's insane. I mean, yeah. Like stop for a second. Have you ever, have you ever been to Vegas? Can you imagine how much money they bring in there? Crazy man. And I have, yeah. And I'm not going back. Look what happens there stays there. Don't worry about it. Well, uh, you know, you're, you took some penicillin. You were fine. By this point, the Albanians, you know, they have a reputation and it's as people who never back down and act with what the FBI referred to as a reckless abandon. Tom Robbins in the village voice, he quotes a Genovese captain from a wiretap saying, I hate these fucking Albanians. If you have a beef with them, you have to kill them right away. There's no talking to them. And another wiretap captures a mafioso describing how the Albanians would just clap a guy and then the schooner would skip off back to Albania, never to be heard from again. You also have to remember the feds were furiously clamping down on the Italians during this time, really trying to shut down the five families, which opens up a door for the Albanians. La Cosa Nostra, this is a quote too, from, uh, from the head of the FBI's organized crime unit in New York. La Cosa Nostra has used these guys like they used the Westies in the past, you know, the Irish gang that we talked about. If you're an up and coming criminal enterprise and the old hands are using you to facilitate their activities, you're going to learn from watching and adapt your style to what you see in those gangs. The Fed said these guys, again, were like the old Sicilians. They had codes, don't roll, don't snitch. They were hard to infiltrate. And also, they were more violent and willing to take risks than the current Italians who, you know, want to profit smartly from, like, stock trade frauds and other things like that. Yeah, I mean, it's like those Yakuza guys we spoke about recently, right? Like the cops having the gangsters do the organized crime because if there's crime, might as well be organized. Like, sounds like the Feds might have realized that they should have done that by that point. Yeah. I mean, I think at this point, the, the, the Italians just had too much control, you know? Uh-huh. Um, and they were, they were serious because they were wild and they started cracking down on them and that caused them to back off and maybe focus. And there's also more money. I mean, once you realize there's more money in like unions and real estate development stuff and, 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 and financial fraud, you know, it's like uh, these, these kids I know who used to be drug dealers or no is a strong word. Anyway, <laughs> these kids I've interacted with who used to be drug dealers um, and like little gangsters in New York and they switched to doing credit card scams because the time you face is a lot less than getting caught on the streets with a gun and even like, you know, five ounces of Coke, right? If you start getting, and credit card scams will earn you more money. It's a lot less risky. The time you face is a lot shorter. So why, why don't you switch to this? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not surprised the Italian immigrants in America like had all these big grand visions either. Like in, in Italy, like Palermo, half of Palermo is built by the mob. I mean, these guys, like they didn't just skim off the top of stuff they actually built entire cities so yeah kind of makes sense they would go big when they mm-hmm. when they got to america hmm. jack garcia who was an undercover fed who famously infiltrated the gambinos he said this in an interview recently so the albanians wound up getting so ruthless that they started taking over some mob joints they really started getting very full of themselves because they saw the mob was subcontracting them so that means they saw that they were getting weak so they started moving in on them this is when they start calling the Albanians, specifically the corporation, the sixth family. Do I, do I need to explain like the five families? I, I, you know, the Lucchese's, the Gambinos, the Bonanos, the Colombos, and the Genovese. They've dominated New York and the U.S. really for like a hundred years. And I guess, you know, that pygmy thing they got over in Jersey. <laughs> you get that? Yeah. Yeah, a little, yeah, little yeah, yeah, Sopranos yeah, nice. deep cut reference. 
Anyway, to be thought of as a sixth family on, on equal footing with those guys, that's a big deal, especially for a new young organization. And how much were they willing to move in on them? So Rao's is this famous Italian restaurant in East Harlem. It's known for being impossible to get a table because there's only like five of them and for being like a celebrity mafia politician hotspot, like the kind of place you see on, on TV. It was founded in 1896 and it's, it's, you know, it's, it's your Nana sauce. It's the, the, best, the, the best they say. <laughs> yeah. Is it open table? I do not think so. I think they started doing delivery after the pandemic, which is Shit. wild. They're okay. a pickup at least. Anyway, Rudas showed up there and when they wouldn't give him John Gotti's table, he came back with 12 guys and he forced them to. And honestly, this like sounds pretty silly, like a plot line for like, an early season of, of Sex and the Silly. But apparently it's a big deal. <laughs> Doesn't this exact thing happen in 000? By the way, I'm going to just start dropping that show in when you do The Sopranos now, because it's like, that show is immense. Wait, does it? Does it happen? I don't remember. I mean, I watched it. It was a yeah, great yeah, show, yeah. but does We're, that like, happen? The, the guys, the new guy, the newbies get thrown off the big table for the narcos. And that's kind of what kicks it all off. You remember that? Apparently, I guess it's I guess it's a thing, man. Yeah, you know, um, but you know, things don't stop there. Soccer fever is this gambling spot in Astoria, Queens, which is a great neighborhood. It's very Greek and Arab, and some of the best under the radar restaurants in New York, and also has like an organized crime contingency there. And according to some people, Soccer Fever was a Gambino run spot. Others say it was Lucchese, and others even say that there was a Greek organized crime family serving under the Gambinos that controlled it, which kind of, you know, places them under the Gambino protection. So this is 2001, right? And one night, it's either seven or 14 Albanian gangsters with Rudaj. They storm it. They pistol whip a guy. They throw the tables around, and one guy announces the game is over. This is like the signal. The Albanians are taking over the racket. I mean, this is, this is unheard of, right? You don't move in on the five families in New York. The Russians barely did that, right? This is wild. And this leads to another showdown with the Gambinos. And it happens where all important business meetings take place at a gas station, at a rest stop on the side of New Jersey Turnpike. So the sit-down was called by an acting Gambino boss named Arnold Squitieri who basically, like, he'd had enough of these guys running around, acting rogue, taking over territory. Rudas shows up, he has six guys with him, and they start talking, but Squitieri isn't playing around, right? He gives a signal, and 20 Gambino, Gambino soldiers come out armed and ready to go. We know all this, by the way, because there was an undercover FBI agent who had infiltrated the Gambinos, and he was with them. Squitieri, he tells Rudas, he's like, knock it off. You know, you guys are doing too much, you're getting out of control, like, it's, it's calm things down. Weapons are pulled out. They're pointing at each other, though the Albanians are, are severely outnumbered. And one of the Albanians, he then points a shotgun at the gas pump they're next to, and he threatens to blow everything up unless the Italians put their, their guns down, which they do. <laughs> yeah. And everything sort, of, you know, everything sort of dissipates. But the Squitieri and the Gambinos, like, they, they'd back down. You have some different sources who say this actually happened before the soccer fever throwdown, but either way, you know, this is, this is a big move, and it kind of signifies how powerful the Albanians had gotten. But things, you know, all, all good things come to an end. And Rudaj and his crew, they're brought down only a few years later in 2004 after some associates wore wires. He gets sentenced 27 years in 2006. But yeah, the Albanians, they're officially on the map and they're, they're a problem. And around the same time as the corporation goes down, another crew is rising up. The Krasniki brothers, Samir and Bruno, were only in their 20s when they were brought down in 2010. And they were charged with murder kidnapping, assault, narcotics, trafficking, robbery, extortion, arson, obstruction of justice, and interstate transportation of stolen goods. <laughs> Anything else? You know, these guys, 
Yeah, no, these guys were making money. They didn't have to do a Patreon. We do. Patreon.com slash the Underworld Podcast. Subscribe so we can keep doing these. If it gets high enough, I will get all the pronunciations right in every episode. I, I promise you that. That was the best segment cra- we've had. That was the best one. <laughs> <laughs> the Krasnikis, they'd come over from Michigan when they were still young, which is another area where Albanians had started an expat community. And they sort of take reckless abandon and knee-jerk violence to a whole other level. They're not exactly the organized, smooth operators that the corporation was, but they apparently always wore suits and they were very dapper. And they did have an aide to the deputy prime minister of Albania who was part of their crew, which is like, what? I mean, <laughs> yeah. what is going on there? That makes perfect sense, man. I mean, let, there's, there's, a, there's a kind of crazy little story. There's this town in southern Albania called Lazarat that was just growing weed for decades, right? And it had like its full army. It was just like a village mafia at a landing strip. And the government didn't go in until like 2014 or 15. And there was this whole gun battle to take over this village that's just got out of control. Um, I remember I was in Tirana at the time and I interviewed the PM. It was Eddie Rama. There was basically like a mini war going on for this village while we were talking. It's like completely crazy. So yeah, someone being in the pocket of the mafia, no surprise at all. I mean, it sounds like that village sounds like the valley in Lebanon, man. Yeah, um, yeah. Which I want to do an episode on as well. So... This group, they focus on robberies, on strong-arming people, and, and trafficking marijuana from Canada and Mexico to the U.S., which, you know, now sounds kind of quaint, but they also did a bunch of murdering and were famous for running around sticking guns in people's mouths, kidnapping people, beating them, you know, that whole sort of uh, wild boy shtick. Less quaint. And this actually caused them to end up going to war with another Albanian crew in New York. And this is part of the big series that, that Kevin Hellman wrote about for Capital New York, which you guys should really read. He is an amazing reporter. It's great. Um, there was this other crew, the, the Joka crew. And this guy had actually started his criminal career in Albania, literally on horseback, robbing and pillaging. And this is where that wild Albanian 90s history comes in because all these guys had grown up in it and were nuts. So Joka was making good money trafficking weed and the brothers were jealous and they saw him as soft because the crews actually were hanging out together. But there had been a bar fight between the two and Joka had, had backed off, which is like a no-no, right? So, so he's weak now. He looks weak in front of his crew. So they ripped him off. They bought 25 pounds of weed from him. And after some discussion, Samra's just like, we're not going to pay you. And Joka's like, are, are you sure? And he's like, yeah, yeah, I'm sure. So Joka is just like, you're, you're going to see what happens. He curses him and he walks as Samir walks away. And Samir dares Joka to curse him again. So Joka does. Samir puts a gun to his head. The fight breaks out. Joka went back to his group's hangout, the La Roma Cafe, and he tells his boys to get ready for war. So they, they buy guns from some other Albanians. One of them buys a $2,000 Uzi. They go underground. They're moving from motel to motel. They get a call that one of the brothers is at a strip club in Queens. So they go there. They wait outside. He walks out the door, and they've got a clean shot at him. Joke has a clean shot at him, and he just chokes. Can't pull the trigger. He had recently lost a girlfriend. Um, she passed away, who he loved deeply. He had a bad drug habit, and he just seems like he was a wreck, even though he was just like this really popular guy in the neighborhood. But he can't do it. And now even his own crew sees him as weak. And the Krasnikis, they had no issues, right? They murdered in the drive-bys with no problem. After this incident, they, they do a drive-by. They murder one of Joka's crew, this kid, Arion Shehu, and they killed him. And they took over the weed game and the gang, gambling racket. But then the brothers mess with the wrong people. They ripped off in a 100-pound weed shipment from some Albanian crew base in Toronto. And these guys weren't having it. They hire some of these Bronx Albanians who are these tough northerners from the mountainous areas. Like I said, that area breeds just like crazy people to settle things and settle things they did. 
Erenik Gresda is part of the brothers' crew. He had come from Albania alone as a teen looking for work. He lived in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, worked construction here or there, wasn't doing great financially, even though he had an uncle in the U.S. who helped him out, and he got suckered into the gangster lifestyle. He actually was with these guys when they killed Shehu, and the Brock's Northern Albanians, once they get their assignment, they kidnap Gresda and another member of the, of, of, uh, of the Joker crew, not the Joker crew, I'm sorry, of the Krasniki crew, and they drive them to Michigan, where they proceed to just beat the crap out of them to get answers. They get him, they get Gresda to give up the brothers, but they still beat him half to death, and they leave him, they leave him freezing and naked on the streets of Detroit. Even wilder, the other member of the crew that was kidnapped calls up Samir, and they tell him, they want 350000 for me to live. And Samir, of all things, he calls the FBI, which is like, he's a gangster himself, and it's a big no-no in Albanian crime circles to like, call the fucking feds. And the FBI uses Samir to set up a sting, not knowing he's a gangster himself, and they eventually grab the bagman who was picking up the money, who refuses to cooperate, and is like, look, you might as well just kill me now because I'm not saying anything. And, and it's weird, the, the investigation just sort of like dies right there into this, this, this Toronto and, and Bronx-based group. This is insane. Has this guy got the rights to this HBO series? Because this is one of the best stories we've had on here. Sean, don't fucking, don't like... <clears throat> anyway, um, <laughs> back in New York, Gresda was rattled. He's losing weight, right? He's scared to death because he had, he had just like, you know, gave up his, his bosses. So he tries to make things right with the Krasnikis. They have a sit-down. He tells them, he's like, look, just pay the Canadians. I mean, these guys are too organized. They're not messing around. But he knew, they knew, he gave them up. So the brothers then invite him out one night. He comes over and they take him into a room in the apartment. Wait, hold on. You kind of got to figure that, that, that these Canadians kind of knew that the Krasnikis were behind it anyway, which is why the Bronx Albanians kidnapped yeah. these guys in the first place. But maybe these these. These Bronx Albanians just knew these guys were behind something. Let me grab. Anyway, whatever. We're not going to get to the bottom of this right now. The brothers invite out um, Gresda. They're like, come over, man. Let's get some drinks. Let's hang out. They take him in the apartment. They actually check him for wires and they check to see his body to see how bad the bruises were. And they kind of are like, you know, the bruises aren't bad enough for, for you to have given us up. But, you know, if your guys are checking you for wires and you're, you're in a gang or, I don't know, I guess, crime group, you got to put two and two together at one point and be like, I shouldn't be hanging out with these guys. I got to go run because, like, something's not right. Even though he had called the FBI, even though he called the FBI in the first place, but there's just sloppiness all over here. So according to, to, to a witness, they were so mad about there not being enough bruises, they wanted to kill him right there, but they decided it would be too risky. The neighbors might have noticed there'd be too much blood, screaming, all that. So the brothers, they tell Grez that they've made a decision. They're going to pay the Canadian suppliers. They're just like, let's go to Connecticut. We'll pick up the money from our guy out there. And then we'll all head out to a club. But they never make it to the club. They never make it to Connecticut. They shoot Grezda in the head and they leave his body on the side of the Brooklyn Queens Expressway. Which is just like, it's just not nice. That's not, you know? that's, that's the opposite of quaint. Yeah. No, and it's, it's sloppy. Um, and then you can tell, I mean, these guys are just wild and they're reckless. They're going to get brought down. They're, they're, they're being too on the radar. Sure. The brothers, they maintain their crew for a few more years before they get brought down. 2009, 2010 by the feds. 2011, they both get life sentences. Other Albanian crews are rising up as they're, they're going down. There's one called the Wolf Pack, which, you know, they ran a coke ring. Um, they get knocked in 2013. And the only Albanian um, guys getting through with this is that guy in the wire, right? The Greek, which one? The Greek. Isn't he Albanian? Was the Greek supposed to be? A, they never really reveal what he was. He's like, I'm not even Greek. And like, they, there's I know some that, like but, uh, sign that he's Albanian. I was like, have I just made that up? 
always thought he was Albanian. No, 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 no. I think I think I think that's uh that's realistic. Um, you know, did it, did did he have a hand? Did he have a head? Did he have hands? <laughs> then it wasn't us. Great line. Uh, another crew was led by a guy named um, Redanel Dervishov, who was running the rackets in 2013, gambling rackets. And what's interesting about him was, one, he had an NYPD officer on his payroll as an enforcer. What's interestingly, there's a similar story in 2007 with another Albanian crew and another cop on the payroll. They just seem really good at this. Anyway, this officer was sentenced in 2018 to 14 years, and together they would shake down local businesses, old school style. Dervishov gets sentenced to... 57 years, 2017. He had run around for a while. In 2007, he was shot trying to shake down a Queens contractor. Five years later, he was accused of knifing a guy to death at a bachelor party in 2012 in Staten Island, but that case didn't go anywhere. His brother, this guy named Plorent, is a big deal mafioso in Albania. I think we mentioned him earlier on with the rocket launchers, but he's like a real deal international syndicate type of of dude. Um, And like I said, we're definitely going to do a bigger episode on the big time international Albanian mob guys that that really are are kind of dominating things in Europe. Yeah, like there is so much more to this stuff as well. It's insane the amount of stories that we've got through them this episode and there's like way more. There's all the cars that they sell in Europe. There's like ah oh god, yeah. They're all over the place. Yeah, recently um Interpol agents have said that the Albanian mob is more of a threat than the Russians. They're running most of the cocaine trade in Europe. You know, huge in people trafficking. You know, I've seen stories about what they're doing in England right now. Like I said, lots of bad rap videos and uh, lots of Maseratis and AKs. Just getting deep in those YouTube holes. Everyone should go just Google like Albanian boys or Albanian rap, and you'll you'll find what I've seen. And it's it's an entertaining way to spend twenty or thirty minutes. It's a pretty dark place. But yeah, that is that is the story of the Albanians in the Bronx. Who I just want to once again say we support and we want no problems with and. Uh, Greater Albania, Albania strong. Um, <laughs> please go to our Patreon, yeah. uh, patreon.com slash the underworld podcast. We've got some great episodes coming up. We put some great interviews up there with, we just had a guy who was a launderer for the cartels. I interviewed a friend of mine who was a fentanyl dealer and a gangster in St. Louis for a bit. Uh, there's, there's interesting stuff happening there. Even if you don't want to listen to the interviews, it helps support us and, and helps keep us going. And, um, yeah, I think that uh, that wraps things up. So uh, until until next time, um, peace. Yeah, take it easy. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.